Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, April 29th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Joining me today to introduce this week's guest is Adam Bristol, our now regular correspondent. Hi, Adam. Hey, Andre, thanks for having me again. So David Sloan Wilson, you actually knew him far before his book came across my desk. So tell me about him. That's right. In the mid-1990s, I was an undergraduate at uh, State University of New York at Binghamton, now known as Binghamton University. Well, now you're dating yourself. That's true. That's true. But he was one of my favorite professors. He's an incredible educator, great teacher, and a highly inventive thinker, too, in evolutionary biology. So I had a couple of really influential professors when I was at the University of Toronto doing my undergraduate degree. And I certainly remember my biology class, you know, first year bio that every pre-med student took. And I remember being shocked at how much of the biology class was devoted to the study of evolution. I mean, to me, I thought like, well, didn't didn't I already know this? I mean, I'd learned about the evolutionary theory in high school. You know, it seemed like the data were unequivocal. And so I didn't understand why like the entire course was essentially designed around the theory of evolution. And I was shocked in my after getting, you know, the grades back from my first exam, that I actually didn't know as much as I thought I had known. Well, it's obviously it's a unifying principle across all of biology. And I forget now off the top of my head who uh, said nothing makes sense in biology, unless it's in, in the light of evolution. So obviously, it's something that ties together just every aspect of biology and different levels of analysis. And Actually, that's a great segue because what made David Sloan Wilson such an innovative thinker is during a period in which the dominant view of evolution was that it acted only at the level of individuals and at the level of the genes within those individuals, this would be the selfish gene hypothesis popularized, of course, by Richard Dawkins, that David Sloan Wilson was part of a small group of evolutionary biologists who continued to take seriously 
the possibility that evolution also worked at the level of groups. Yeah, I actually remember this uh, specifically. It's one of the reasons why his name rang a bell when his book came across my desk, because I remember that was one of the parts of the evolutionary theory that I had completely neglected, that I that I hadn't realized could act that way. And, you know, I remember at least my professor at U of T was saying that his work was really innovative and that it was in some ways controversial. I mean, controversial insofar as it went against the grain. You know, the right, world exactly. had really, you know, had just come to accept essentially as dogma that evolution worked at the level of genes and that 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 there was no strong evidence to that point that it could work at the level of groups. And what David Sloan Wilson has done, and again, you know, at, at, to the extent that I understand it, is not just look at the level of group selection in the animal kingdom, but start to look at evolutionary social psychology and some of the unique aspects of human civilizations could, that could support or provide some evidence that evolution could work on the level of groups. And he's taken his career, if you, you know, I remember in the late 90s, some of his early books like Unto Others, but he's published you know, half dozen books since then, and has really broadened his thinking beyond what I'd consider academic biology into areas of public policy, altruism, civics, uh, and uh, and even some of uh, – he touches upon some areas of economics uh, in his most recent work. Yeah. So I, I remember thinking that it was really exciting to read about a person who is a living professor who is is actually, you know, making uh, inroads in, in terms of our understanding of evolutionary theory in the time in which I was a student. And that was a very exciting to me because up until then I had really thought evolutionary theory, Darwin, you know, 150 years ago, it's like, you know, we know everything there is to know about it. And here was a person who was showing us that not only do we not know everything there is to know about it, but there's so much more that we can learn about biology uh, by using the frame of the evolutionary theory and understanding it more deeply. So that's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to David Sloan Wilson about his current book, This View of Life, completing the Darwinian revolution, in which he applies evolutionary theory to help us solve some of the major problems facing us today, uh, not just in terms of, you know, understanding biology, but rather understanding the decisions that we make as humans and how with the problems facing us as a planet, we actually need to use evolutionary theory to help guide our policymaking. David Sloan Wilson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much, Andrea. So those of us who are biology enthusiasts have pretty much agreed that evolution has reshaped biology and you can't really understand any kind of biological phenomenon without thinking about evolution. But your book takes that a step further. Tell us a little bit about what you think evolution or the theory of evolution still can tell us about other aspects of life. Uh, indeed. So uh, the biology files among us uh, love to quote uh, the saying, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. The geneticist Theodosius Dojansky said that in the 1970s. And so that conveys the idea that uh, we have a theory that explains the length and breadth of living processes, uh, but that does not, for most people, apply to everything that we associate with the words human culture, and policy, and needs to. So the idea of completing the Darwinian uh, revolution is just that. We need to expand this amazing way of thinking so that it covers all of the things that we associate with human culture and policy. So that makes a lot of people nervous because of the kind of negative connotations of social Darwinism. So can you walk us through a little bit about what social Darwinism is, how that term came about, 
Uh, sure, and there's a whole chapter devoted to it. Uh, for most people, social Darwinism means uh, the justification of social inequality. And so one point to make is that any tool can be used as a weapon. So uh, evolutionary theory is, uh, that's true for that as well. Uh, so you can use evolutionary theory to justify social inequality. If you do, it's one of many explanations. And uh, for the most part, social Darwinism um, is used as a pejorative to brand uh, other people's opinions. No one, people don't call themselves social Darwinists. And the people that are called social Darwinists actually seldom invoke Darwin's theory. So Obama called his Republican opponents social Darwinists for their tax policies. But the idea that the Republicans were invoking Darwin is downright funny. So at the end of the day, uh, we have a situation where um, Darwin's theory needs to be used as a tool. We need to prevent it being used as a weapon, and, uh, and we can do so. Yeah, so I, I was really intrigued by your description of uh, Hitler, actually, and how a lot of people sort of see or, or, or kind of read history as, as him using social Darwinism or, or the evolutionary theory to justify his actions. And yet you point out very interestingly that that is certainly not the case. Yeah, what exists, and this is a little bit discouraging for those that are scientists and scholars, is that if you look at the uh, scholarship on this topic, you find both the best and the worst. You find uh, the good scholarship that enables us to say that Hitler was not at all influenced by Darwin, along with this kind of bogeyman story, which says, oh, if you believe in Darwin, then terrible things will, will happen, and just puts a taboo on the, whole, on the whole topic. So the best and the worst exists within the same halls of academia. And something that's almost never mentioned is that uh, uh, progressive thinkers such as John Dewey, the beloved social reformer, he was influenced by Darwin. Hitler was not, Dewey was, but nobody calls Dewey a social Darwinist. Isn't that curious? So this is the sense in which we really have to reject the bogeyman version of social Darwinism, as if if you even begin thinking about evolution, then you're going to end up thinking like Hitler, and get back to the decent scholarship that does exist on the subject. Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting to me to read about how this idea that if you kind of let the poor or uh, the disabled kind of die out, that leads to a better human race and that that might even be God's plan. Then so there was this this way of using a religious argument to justify allowing suffering in others. So I, I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit because it was it was it's an interesting way of kind of reframing some of the tenets of evolutionary theory, but not at all part of the theory. So can you kind of walk us through how that kind of view is not actually uh, related to what Darwin was was suggesting? Well, if you go back to uh, these early thinkers, such as Galton and Spencer, who, uh, who were justifying inequality, you find some thinking that in retrospect is very simplistic, which is that in order to produce the best societies, you need to produce the best individuals. Um, in other words, a direct mapping of the, of the superior individual to the superior society. And uh, I describe an example in my book of breeding hens that way, 
So the hens are in cages, and you select the most productive hen within each cage to uh, breed the next generation of hens. And so that, um, you might think, is going to produce the best hen society. But no, what you did was you, produ- you, you, you selected the biggest bully. The most productive hen in each group was the biggest bully. And after five generations, you've, you've bred a hyper-aggressive breed of, of hens, and egg productivity has gone gone um, gone down. I think that has a direct correspondence in human society, that if you look at the, the haves of human societies, the haves and the have-nots, the degree to which the haves have gotten to where they are in ill-begotten ways by being bullies and, and so on and so forth, if you actually were to breed them, then you'd get the same result as the chicken experiment. So we have to appreciate that that a well-functioning society is not just a collection of well-functioning individuals. It requires a whole different set of traits, basically cooperative traits. Yeah, so that was really interesting. And, and the, the psychopathic chickens example was um, really, to me, it was, it was very kind of a, a great analogy. And it made me wonder, you know, this, this idea that like, so those bully chickens, uh, when they were... F- five generations down the line, they actually produced fewer eggs. So, uh, but when you took like eight nice chickens or you picked the group of chickens that as a group produced the most eggs and selectively bred them, you got, you know, healthy chickens and, you know, 160% increase in the egg production ultimately. Can you walk us through how evolutionary theory would kind of suggest that we should behave with a second group of chickens and not the first group of chickens. Well, this enables me to make another major point of the book, which is that evolution goes beyond genetic evolution. It includes cultural evolution, our personal evolution, and frankly, just the choices we make as flexible individuals. So if you imagine a group, let's say a university department, and you have a certain policy for promotion, how do people get tenure? Do they get tenure on the basis of their individual productivity? Do they get tenure on the basis of their cooperative activities within the group? Um, Depending on how you incentivize promotion, then you can get the equivalent of the chicken experiment. You can get basically self-serving people who care only about their own careers. And as a result, uh, the department will very likely suffer uh, for lack of cooperative activities. So in this case, something took place. it, was, uh, it led to the same outcome as genetic evolution in the chicken experiments, but what it was based on was flexible individuals basically choosing, making their decisions in a certain incentivized environment. So evolution took place, but it led, it, 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 it led to the problem and not the solution. Yeah, I want to delve a little bit more deeply into this idea of behavioral flexibility, because I think that for a lot of people who have a pretty superficial understanding of of evolution, there isn't a lot of room for kind of behavioral flexibility to have an impact ultimately on the survival of the species. So can you kind of unpack that idea for us? Well, when we think about evolution going beyond uh, genetic evolution, uh, the immune system provides a really good example because the immune system includes what's called an innate component and an adaptive component. Uh, the innate component is enormously complex but does not change during the lifetime of the organism. Uh, it consists of many, many modules uh, that do not change during our lifetimes. The adaptive component 
our uh, our amazing ability to produce a uh, hundred million different antibodies and to select those that successfully bind to antigens. And so our antibodies do change during our lifetime. So they count as a uh, a very rapid evolutionary process. So I think a lot of your listeners are familiar with the example of the immune system. Now start thinking about our entire behavioral system this way, how we end up behaving as having an adaptive component. We have many, many psychological modules which we inherit and do not change during our lifetimes. But then we have this ability to behave in a flexible manner and uh, for those behaviors that are reinforced, this is very Skinnerian, to become more common. Or our symbolic systems, um, the, the, the systems that we carry in our heads. This goes beyond Skinner, but nevertheless can count as a rapid evolutionary process like the adaptive component of the immune system. So just making that metaphorical transfer, I think, is enormously insightful and, and frankly causes you to think about therapy in a new way. Yeah. And so, you know, a large part of your book, you talk about the Evolution Institute, uh, which is, you know, I guess a way of kind of using these ideas to try to implement solutions to some of our most complex problems. So can you tell us a little bit about the Institute and then we can delve more deeply into what you've been doing? Uh, sure. And the Evolution Institute is, uh, frankly, the first think tank that is uh, that uh, formulates policy based on modern evolutionary theory. And to say that it's the only one is a little bit shocking, given how much these ideas are needed. So uh, we're capable of taking any policy issue from economics to early childhood education uh, to national governance and approaching it from this uh, uh, from this perspective. Uh, and we uh, so we're a small think tank, but we punch way above our weight. I encourage uh, your listeners to visit the Evolution Institute and its online magazine, This View of Life, uh, to see what we're up to. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about one particular implementation that I found fascinating, which related to um, schools in the area? Yeah. So, um, but before talking about schools, uh, let's talk about what all groups need. That is one chapter in the book. The idea that, um, that uh, really the small cooperative group is a fundamental unit of human social organization. This by itself is radically different than uh, the last 50 years of um, intellectual thought, which is which is basically identified the individual as the fundamental unit. But it turns out that uh, the small group is uh, as a cooperative unit is uh, is fundamental, no matter what kind of group that is. There are certain ingredients that all groups need in order to um, in order to function cooperatively. And in the case of the school, soon after learning about these principles and generalizing them uh, with uh, Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in 2009, I had the opportunity to create a a school for at-risk students in my city of Binghamton. And without much resources, we basically designed the school with these core design principles in mind. And and do you know, we took students that uh, that uh, flunked three or more of their courses the previous year, and uh, they did as well as the average high school student during the first year of this 
of this school. So that shows you the transformative effect of uh, altering our social environments if you know what to do, which can apply not only to schools, but to every kind of group. So there's tremendous empowerment that's possible uh, in this way. Yeah. And even beyond the group area, which I think that um, you do a beautiful job in the book describing uh, how those principles can be applied to to actually evaluate, first of all, if your group is going to be functioning effectively or if it's actually going to end up being toxic and not working. But this can also be true to the individual. And you, you mentioned it just a, a minute ago about sort of psychotherapy. And so can you walk us through a little bit about how therapy or, or psychotherapy relates to some of the tenets of evolution, like variability and adaptability. Sure, happy to. Uh, a general point to make um, in, in in preparation is the idea that evolution can be the problem, in addition to the uh, uh, solution. So evolution is often driving us to benefit ourselves at the expense of others, or our groups at the expense of other groups. Uh, drives us to benefit our short-term goals rather than our long-term goals. Uh, you've probably heard about the marshmallow test that um, uh, some kids uh, can't even wait 10 minutes to get a second marshmallow because they're so eager to eat the first one. And so when you look at people that are in distress and need therapy or training, let me make the point that uh, there's really little difference between therapy, which is what you need if you're really in need of help, and training, which athletes of all levels of expertise need trainers. Uh, so no matter what your current level of functioning, these ideas can be uh, useful. Call it training, call it, uh, call it therapy. But when you look at the, what's problematic, often these are adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word. Say that we're in a relationship and that relationship has turned into a very bad one. Why is that? Uh, probably because one person is exploiting the other, or maybe they're mutually exploiting themselves. If you have a dysfunctional family and everyone's being obnoxious, what's going on there? Well, probably in some very, very local sense, uh, the members of the family are getting something by being obnoxious. And so what we need to do is we need to somehow align these processes of evolution, which will always be taking place, so that they're aligned with our normative goals. And you can do that if you know what to do. So the steps that are taken is, first of all, you need to focus on the target of selection. What do I really, what's really important to me? What do I really want to work towards in some positive sense? That becomes your target of selection. Then you need to become more flexible because often people become fused around their problems. They develop a narrow repertoire of behavior and they can't really get beyond that. So evolution needs variation you need to become more flexible. And there's ways of doing that. And then you need to mindfully select the behaviors that take you towards your valued goals. I've basically described what's often called third wave therapy, which includes a behavioral, a cognitive, and a mindfulness-based component, especially a version called acceptance and commitment therapy founded by Stephen C. Hayes, who I work with very closely and describe in the book. Yeah. And so in a sense, what you're su suggesting is that the theory of evolution could have predicted the success of this type of theory of this type of therapy. In a sense, I mean, it makes good sense of it in retrospect, but also more important is that it, uh, 
is it enables us to um, to uh, actually improve our methods in the in the uh, future. Can you pursue a new intellectual passion? Can you evolve and grow at an Ivy League university? Can you build on everything you know to reach new heights? You can at Columbia University School of General Studies. Receive a genuine college experience under the guidance of world-renowned faculty and personalized advice from mentors dedicated to meeting the unique needs of non-traditional students. Students are either just beginning their undergraduate educations or resuming them after a break from school. Each GS student has a different story. They've had careers, served in the military, raised families, and lead rewarding lives. And now, obtaining an Ivy League college education is their next milestone. GS students possess real-world experience. And it's that experience, with research-backed support programs, that inspires a greater desire for academic success along the journey to earning a prestigious Columbia University degree. Your journey would always lead you here. To discover how you can continue your story, visit gs.columbia.edu slash you can. Fall regular decision application deadline is June 1st, so apply today. If there is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Everything you share is confidential. And it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you are not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Mind listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com forward slash MINDS. So now taking together sort of the principles of how groups can function well, relying in part on on, uh, Lynn's Nobel Prize winning, I think they're called CBDs? CBDs? Uh, uh, Core design (laughs) principles, yes. Yes, CDPs. Uh, and then this idea that the evolution that the individual um, can also learn to ensure that the goals that they are seeking are ones that are um, going to benefit them and not simply leave them in a kind of spiral of, uh, you know, seeking individual in initially rewarding things that in the long term can be punishing. How do we bring these two sets of ideas together to help us combat some of the really big issues facing our planet. Right. That's so how do we increase in scale, basically? And um, and we're developing this uh, in a very practical way. In addition to the Evolution Institute website, there's a website called prosocial.world, prosocial.world, which shows how we are working in a very practical way to uh, do this. And the most important insight is that these same principles, core design principles that are needed to govern small groups are scale independent. So they're needed for to govern relations among groups in addition to within groups. And so the challenge is, is to um, take a situation that's a multi-group situation. We call that the mesoscale. Let's say a town or a city or a county or perhaps a natural unit such as a watershed, okay? 
and then locate the the groups within it. Our, our, our micro unit is not the individual, but the functionally oriented group to work with those groups to implement the core design principles and to become more flexible. So they now become more mindful of their own evolution. And then to turn them into cooperative actors in the construction of um, a pro-social unit at the larger scale. So how can we become the smart city or the smart county or the smart watershed? And then uh, of course it could go up from, from there. So it's very multi-level and the important thing, I think, is that it leads to a practical way of going about things. This is not just like exciting big ideas. This is actually a toolkit for uh, improving our lives at all scales, from the individual all the way up to the large scale, ultimately the whole earth. So do you think that you know, you, we need evolutionary biologists to serve on these kind of policymaking boards? Or do you think it's enough for lawmakers and policymakers to, you know, understand the theory of evolution and and apply it that way? I think the more literate, the better. And uh, and uh, another point to make is that in, in order for us to formulate wise policy, uh, there's two things that uh, don't work and only one thing that can work. And one thing that won't work is laissez-faire, just let people pursue their interests in an unregulated fashion. Uh, The other thing is centralized planning because the world is too complex for a group of experts to understand it and to just straight away implement it. So the one thing that, only thing that can work is some kind of managed process of cultural evolution. Just as what I described for individuals, we need to, in some larger sense, we need to, to choose large systemic goals that we want to do. And then we have to, to the best of our knowledge, we have to become flexible about finding alternative solutions. In other words, we have to orient uh, our practices towards the solution of the systemic goal. And then we have to uh, basically uh, select the best practices based on on um, how they, basically it's like therapy writ large. And if that's what policy becomes, then I think the ones that are involved have to be very smart about evolution. Uh, they don't necessarily need to be trained as biologists, but uh, this, uh, um, this view of life, basically, this evolutionary worldview has to become the policymaking worldview. Basically, it should be replacing uh, neoliberal economics and other uh, worldviews that uh, currently are dominant and causing us to make of very bad decisions. So you talk about these two options that don't work, laissez-faire and centralized planning. And, and you know, the biggest perhaps experiment of centralized planning was communism in, in the Soviet Union and, and ultimately le- leading to its entire collapse. But maybe that was because it was really run by human beings who we know are fallible. There's a kind of idea now that what if you ki- if you programmed machines, artificial intelligences, you know, and machine learning, to do the planning for us, to do the centralized planning, and and let's say you program them with some of the tenets of evolution, do you think that that would actually be even better than allowing humans to select their own policies? Well, uh, how many issues did you raise with that question? Let me uh, let me go back to communism as to whether that's an example of centralized planning failing or not. Maybe. Um, I think in addition, to, uh, it's important to point out that. Um, 
corporations uh, often employ top-down command and control planning, and it doesn't work at that level either. So I think we have many examples of the failure of centralized planning at the corporate level, in addition to national governance. And we have the best of reasons in theoretical terms to expect why centralized planning cannot work, along with laissez-faire, leaving only one alternative, uh, some form of of a managed cultural evolution, experimentation. Um, and this has actually arisen many times because it is the only thing that can work. Uh, it's the only thing that ever has worked. When we look back at successful examples of, uh, of uh, positive uh, cultural evolutionary change, uh, we will see that it was a managed process of cultural evolution, including the three ingredients. First of all, there was a target of selection that was systemic. Secondly, variation was oriented towards that target. And third, attention was played to replication because these things don't replicate by them themselves. And I'm currently having a wonderful time reinterpreting various periods of history from this perspective. For example, the philosophical tradition of pragmatism, which led to people such as John Dewey and his approach to social change, and also to the policies of uh, 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 politicians such as Woodrow Wilson, who was a globalist. Um, and he got us into World War I and, and, uh, and, um, and tried to uh, form the League of Nations and, and so on. So, so uh, managed process of cultural evolution. And then when we ask what can machine learning assist with this, uh, I think the answer to that question is, yes, by all means, as long as it is merely assisting. But the idea that machine learning can do it on its own is, in the first place, um, uh, unworkable. I doubt that it could work. And in the second place, uh, I don't think would be desirable because uh, we do have our science fiction scenarios about the computers taking over and the like, and those are not entirely beyond the realm of possibility. So one of the things that has really stuck with me from your book is this idea that in order to make an observation, you sort of need a theory, that a theory allows us to see what was previously invisible. Good. I'm glad that that stuck with you. And let me recapitulate my argument at the very beginning of the book, which was to say that um, many people think of science as alternative theories to explain a common stock of observations. So first we see the world and then we theorize about it. We invent different theories. And the problem with that is that the common stock of observations is so large, nearly infinite. So it's impossible to pay attention to everything. Therefore, a theory is needed to uh, call attention to some things and not others. So we need to theorize to see. First we theorize and then we see. Einstein, who's probably the most quotable of all scientists, said, the theory decides what we can observe. And so, so much depends on your theory. And we need to broaden what we mean by theory to be more or less any perspective or worldview. The lens through which you see the world is based on uh, basically the symbolic system, the meaning system that you have. That might be a religion. It might be some informal perspective, it might be a scientific theory, but it will organize your perception. And so nothing is obvious all by itself, only against the background of other 
beliefs. And that's why it's so important to have the right theory compared to the, the wrong theory. So the book, that's the, the primary goal of the book is basically to, to uh, make this, uh, this uh, lens, this view of life uh, intuitive so that the reader ends up thinking at the end of the day, uh, along with Thomas Huxley, how stupid of us not to have thought of that. So I wanted to bring that up because in my last question, I I wonder if you can help us sort of use this theory to predict the future and what we should be looking for. And and specifically, I'm really interested in not only potentially how our culture will change uh, as these different parts of evolution are, are going to be affecting us, but also how technology is going to change us. Do you have any insights in sort of in terms of how we should be looking for um, or predicting how technology might shape human beings. One of my current projects with uh, one of my associates named Alan Honick is uh, actually to produce a series of, of uh, nonfiction uh, of film documentaries on um, major evolutionary transitions. If there's anyone out there that can assist in this project, please call us up. Uh, so the concept of major evolutionary transitions is that groups become so cooperative that they become higher level organisms in their own right. That's happened in the biological world, uh, starting with the origin of life, uh, um, all the way up to cells and multicellular organisms, social insect colonies, so on. Early human evolution was a major genetic transition. There's been many cultural transitions, and those, to to get um, more closely to your point, co-evolved with technological innovations of all sorts. So that that co-evolution between technology and human society has been going on for a very, very long time. I mean, tool use, you could think of, is, is basically the start of uh, that. And then... Uh, and then the electronic age, uh, which really began with the telegraph and the telephone, it's not new, and now, of course, is at this ever-accelerating pace, is the cutting edge, basically, of uh, cultural evolution. And uh, will it lead to another major transition, which will be, in a sense, the final one, so that we actually do have a planetary organism uh, with a planetary brain uh, that was given a spiritual expression in Teilhard de Chardin, with which I uh, began the book, but also has a purely uh, secular formulation many times and in many different ways. I think the answer to that is maybe, and uh, uh, it could also go in extremely dystopic uh, directions. So that's why it's so important to have the right theory in mind and actually work towards um, managing uh, the cultural evolutionary process uh, in the uh, internet uh, age, so that we can configure this to to uh, um, support global cooperation rather than uh, rather than uh, undermining it. Not an easy task, but uh, there is a blueprint for knowing what to do. Yeah. So let's just delve a tiny bit deeper into that. You know, what is what are what would be your recommendations for people who are concerned about how technology is changing us, and even you know, as you mentioned, accelerating the change in which we see in ourselves. Um, you know, you know, is that something that what should we be doing? You know, what what are are any are there any kind of principles that an individual can live by that would fall in line with your um, notions of the best way to manage cultural evolution. Yeah, there is, and and so uh, that's great to 
probably end with this with this focus at the very end of the book i have a you know what can we do uh section and it depends on what your capacity is uh, everyone has the capacity to manage their personal evolution so there's point one also everyone exists in groups of various sorts uh, that are trying to get things done so to manage your own evolution and to manage the evolution of the groups that you partake in is something that everyone can do um, after a group becomes strong then it becomes an actor an organism in multi-group interactions and every person can engage in that um, engage in that also uh, at that point then that might reach the end of some people's capacities but others have larger capacities. They might be CEOs or they might be politicians, basically able to work at larger scales. And uh, one important point to make is that what you need to do at any scale is scale independent. It is just the application of these same basic principles again and again and again, these core design principles that all groups need is the title of one of the chapters. And another thing that's needed at all scales is a whole earth ethic. Um, Multi-level selection tells us this very clearly. You, know, you might already have a whole earth ethic, but uh, but now you have a, a new scientific justification for it. And what that means is, is that when we contemplate our actions at any scale, we have to be asking the question, what is the impact of what we're doing at the highest possible scale? And we need to coordinate the lower level activities so that they do contribute to the higher good. Uh, that has always been the case, except uh, in the past, the higher good has been something short of the planetary good. It might be the good of my gang, for example, or the good of my nation, or the good of my corporation, or the good of my religion. All of those are higher level entities, uh, but not as high as they need to be. And so, therefore, they create dysfunctions higher up the scale. So uh, that might have sounded like a lot um, and a little bit abstract, but I do think that it is easy to grasp and does provide uh, something for all of us uh, to do at our various capacities. Yeah, and I, I thank you. I, I'm sure a lot of listeners are like me who, you know, we feel very hopeless at times in terms of what we can do to stop catastrophic climate change and other problems we see in the world. And to be able to use a beloved theory to help us navigate decision making uh, is really encouraging and hopeful. So David's book, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution, is now on sale everywhere. David Sloan Wilson, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds and for writing this really important book. Well, thanks to you for publicizing it and uh, on all other things, too. So I don't know if you noticed, but in the middle of the interview, I had one of those moments that is just really crushing. <laughs> so do you remember that like almost 10 years ago, you bought me the most awesome computer anyone had ever had owned? You know, you, you went to the Mac store and you just bought like the biggest, most awesome computer. Yeah, right? I basically got uh, first real job <laughs> after my postdoc was feeling just flush with cash, Mr. Moneybags. And I was like, there's one thing my sweetheart really wants is the most, the, the best top of the line Apple computer that I could possibly carry home. Yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty nerdy about that. And I love that computer so much that I did not want to give it up. I did not want to, you know, replace that computer. And in the middle of my interview with David Sloan Wilson, 
just as I was asking him a question that actually you and I had talked about when we were discussing his book. Remember, this was this, this idea that, you know, he has, he sort of suggests that there's kind of two ways of, of thinking about policy or, or two strong modes that have been used, uh, or, you know, by people when they're policymaking. And that is a sort of laissez-faire attitude of capitalism, or the kind of centralized planning view um, of, of, you know, potentially communism. These are, these are, I'm simplifying it much more so than he does in the book. But you and I talked about how there's like a third way using machine learning. Oh, yeah. No, what I was saying is that um, what David Sloan Wilson's argument in the book is that laissez-faire and, uh, you know, command economies simply don't work. And one that's more inspired by evolutionary thinking is really the, the one that has the most data supporting its, I guess, overall productivity and efficiency. And what I was thinking is that there are other theorists, specifically Yuval Harari in his um, Homo Deus book uh, more recently, that advances in artificial intelligence and in rapid uh, technological advances that provide almost instantaneous measurement and communication that the command economies and, uh, uh, um, and planned economies of the 50s that didn't work could work potentially in the future. And I just wondered how, you know, Dr. Wilson, you know, maybe responded to that, you know, theoretical possibility. Yeah. So I was literally formulating that question and the computer died. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> So in this little <laughs> microcosm, uh, at the present, we're still not there yet. And uh, the, uh, the planned economy is not going to work, at least in our household. <laughs> yeah. But uh, again, projecting um, ahead, it is possible. Did, but did he so answer he, the question? He, he did answer the question. Ultimately, he went back and uh, he very, very kindly agreed uh, to meet with me uh, virtually uh, again. And we finished up the interview um, with my little laptop computer. So listeners, if you notice a change in terms of how uh, the podcast sounds. It was because I had to make do with my little laptop uh, as as now I work through data recovery and eventually, you know, get a new computer. Uh, and and yes, I am that person that although I have, you know, major backup solutions, I had not backed up that computer for a little while. Hey, it so, happens to all of us. Lesson learned, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, yes. So 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 he did. Uh, he did actually answer that question. And essentially, you know, his his point was that, well, he kind of rephrased it. And so I'll, I'll let you listen to the entire interview. Um, and of course, our listeners have already listened to the entire interview. So <laughs> they can pull out what they what they think about that. Why did he name the book? Why did he title the book, This View of Life, which is also the, the, the name of the magazine or the basically the periodical that the Evolutionary Institute puts out? Why, why is it This View of Life? Because when I hear that, it's almost as if it's a particular, it's a one of several possible perspectives as if this is my view of life. What's your view of life? When in, you know, I would say that evolutionary principles are the bedrock and the accepted foundation of all biological sciences. So to say, not this view of life, but the view of life. I'm just curious, did he, did he do you have a sense of why he titled I mean, the book? I think because he, unlike you and me, acknowledges that there are some people who don't share that I see. fundamental wow. okay. um, understanding. You're but right. I think he would certainly agree that this is the best view of life. Mm. Uh, but before we go, I did want to expand a little bit uh, on some of the things that he talked about that he mentioned. Uh, and these are the core design principles um, from Nobel Prize winner uh, Lynn that he talks about in the book. Um, and, you know, we, we talk a little bit about the CDPs, and we never really quite named them. And, and I think that's in part because um, it's a it's a little bit it's 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 a little bit verbose. And so in an interview, I think he was being very kind, um, and not wanting to uh, 
to to have answers that you know take up 20 minutes so um i'm gonna just take some time now to just get give you the uh, the eight cdps um as he lists them and uh and and that'll sort of help you understand what he means when we're talking about you know what what groups need and then ultimately um you know how these kinds of principles can help us work through major problems in our planet so cdp1 is that strong group identity and understanding of purpose that that the most successful group groups know the boundaries of their resources Number two is that there's proportional equivalence between benefits and costs. So that's pretty straightforward. Number three is fair and inclusive decision making. Um, groups that don't function well are ones in which it's unclear who makes the decisions and, and that these can be uh, uh, perceived as unfair. CDP four is monitoring agreed upon behaviors. CDP five, graduated sanctions. So if someone isn't doing their part, then uh, first you start with a friendly reminder uh, to, to remind them to actually participate. But ultimately, you will need to uh, Im- use tougher measures such as punishment and inclusion, uh, if necessary. CDP six, fast and fair conflict resolution. Um, you know, conflicts really, if they are left to fester, can really destroy groups. CDP number seven, local autonomy. So when a group is nested within a larger society, then it must be given enough authority to create its own social organization and make its own decisions. And the last one, polycentric governance. So in large societies that consist of many groups, relationships among groups must embody the same principles as relationships among individuals within groups. So this is where he was talking about scale independence. So uh, with that said, I still think that even if you take notes and listen very closely to this interview, there's so much more to learn from his book. So I highly recommend it. I encourage you to go out and buy it. And I know, Adam, you and I are going to be rereading it again uh, over the next few weeks. Absolutely. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Miller, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Andrea Viscontis. And I'm Adam Bristol. See you next week. Whatever struggles you are facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.